Good morning. It is great to see y'all here at the 8 a.m. service. Thank you for being with us here today. I, I feel uh, instinctively like I should roll into our announcements. However, those have already been covered. So I will, I'll cover the sermon, I guess. How does that sound? Hey, uh, we are in our series revealed. Dusty kicked off that series last week, and we're super excited to dive into it. Today, like Joel said, I am talking to you about a prophecy, uh, which uh, in my mind, when I think of that, I think of coincidences, okay? And I have a pretty good story about coincidences. So uh, a couple years ago, uh, my wife Bethany and I, we went to a concert in Tulsa. Uh, this was a Ben Rector concert. Ben Rector is a popular musician. We like a lot of his stuff. Uh, and we went to his concert that he was throwing in Tulsa. Um, and as we're, you know, at the concert, we're having a great time. Uh, and he starts playing one of his songs, one of his original songs. It actually is the song that Bethany and I danced to at our wedding. So that's, I'm already like, oh yes, okay, this is getting me brownie points. I, it, that's awesome. But, but and it doesn't just stop there. He gets off the stage, he, he takes his microphone, he gets off the stage, he starts to come up into like all the, the seats, and he comes up, and we're, we're at the edge of one of the rows, and we have these empty seats right behind us. And Ben Rector comes up, and he gets in the row right behind us. Like, he could, he could sweat on me. I'm not saying I, I hoped that. I think Bethany maybe hoped that, but I didn't hope that. But he, so, so here's the setup. So he is behind us. He's right there in the seats directly behind us, and he is singing our, our wedding song, which is just unbelievable. And I would like to tell you that, like, I was being you know, the best husband in the world, and I was like, you know, turning to Bethany, looking her in the eyes, and like dancing with her. I had my phone out, like videoing him the whole time. I was like, this is awesome. Uh, but then, here, here's what's crazy. So he's, and it's, it's, you know, obviously wedding song. It's this, you know, you know, heartfelt love song. Uh, and while he's doing this, he actually, like in jest, he puts his arm around this older man who's next to him in the crowd, and they're like, everybody's laughing as they're swaying back and forth. And then Ben Rector, he like looks at the guy, and he does like a bit of a double take, and he goes, he goes back down to the stage, and after he finishes the song, he's like a little bit like shaken and surprised, and he says, hey, this is crazy, guys. So uh, the person I just stood next to is the father of one of my best friends that I grew up with. I, I grew up knowing that guy, and he happened to be here tonight. I seriously had no idea that that was him. And so all these like crazy coincidences all for us, like we're like, wow, that's our wedding song, and he's right here with us, and then that happens. Those are just like interesting things that happen, and, and sometimes it's amazing just what happens out of chance, right? Uh, if we have any fans of like urban legends in the room, uh, one like famous urban legend um, is uh, several coincidences between former presidents Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. Maybe some of you guys have heard some of these. Uh, so I got these from Wikipedia. Uh, in the words of Michael Scott, anyone in the world can put whatever they want on Wikipedia so you know you're getting the best possible information. Many of you are thinking, you weren't a good student, were you? No, I wasn't, but that is not relevant. Okay, so here are some of the little uh, believed coincidences between Lincoln and Kennedy. Uh, first of all, Lincoln and Kennedy uh, each have seven letters. Okay, big deal. There are a lot of presidents, so that's not that surprising. Uh, both presidents were elected to Congress in 46 and later to the presidency in 60. Obviously different centuries, but same year. Okay, that's, that's pretty interesting, wow. Uh, both married women in their 20s while themselves in their 30s. Uh, both lost a son while living in the White House. Okay, that's pretty wild. Uh, both were shot in the presence of their spouses. 
Uh, both assassins, John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald, were born in 39 and were known by their three names composed of 15 letters. Booth ran from Fort's Theater and was caught in a warehouse. Oswald ran from the Dealey Plaza warehouse and was caught in a theater. This is starting to get a little crazy, okay? Uh, both presidents were runners-up for the party's nomination for vice president in 56. Again, different centuries, but same year. Both successors were Southern Democrats, surnamed Johnson. Both were born in 08, and their first names contained six letters. The assassins were both Southerners. Both were particularly concerned with civil rights, the, the presidents, not the assassins, okay? Uh, and they made their views strongly known in 63. Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 19, or, sorry, 1862, which became a law a year later. A century later, Kennedy presented his reports to Congress on civil rights during the famous March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom that same year. Okay, this is like weird stuff. It says this, both presidents were shot in the head on a Friday and died at nearby locations, Lincoln at the Peterson House across the street, Kennedy at the Parkland Memorial Hospital down the road. Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater. Kennedy was shot in a Ford car, a Lincoln limousine. Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy who told him not to go to Ford's Theater, and Kennedy had a secretary named Evelyn Lincoln, whose husband's Harold nickname was Abe and she warned Kennedy not to go to Dallas, and both Oswald and Booth were assassinated before they could be put on trial. That's unbelievable, right? Well, part of that's because not all of this is true. Uh, while these, a lot of these are believed, as they're supposed, uh, many of these have been fact-checked, and they've been found to be false. Uh, but imagine if all these things were true, like just factoid after factoid. Th that's just so much coincidence that you start to think, okay, if this is all true, it, it's not coincidence, right? There's got to be something more to it. And so that's what scripture is like, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So again, we are in this series called Revealed, and while if you open the Bible, if you want to find like Jesus's ministry and life, you look to the first four books of the New Testament, there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament that actually reveal things about our Savior. One of the biggest myths there is is that Jesus doesn't show up in the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, really it is all about pointing to a Messiah that would come. There are so many prophecies that hint to, to Jesus, but also to other historical events that have all proven to come through, and that's just really impressive and hard to believe. Uh, for instance, let's just take that key scripture we had. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm, uh, Psalm 2. Uh, that is the, the scripture that Joel read earlier, and it is an example of something that's rich uh, which, with things that would be relevant later. Uh, for instance, uh, the first two verses, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's verse one. Verse two says, the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Th that's... Uh, paraphrased by disciples in Acts chapter 4, uh, and they take that, and, and it serves as like a commentary on the trials that Jesus had undergone, and in fact, the, the kings and the nations, they actually liken to like the Jews and the Gentiles and the Pharisees and all the other people groups around him. Uh, verse 7, uh, it says this, I will tell of the, degree, the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 7 is paraphrased in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's paraphrased both at Jesus' baptism, we all know that, this is my son who I love, with him I am well pleased, but also at his transfiguration, this is my son who I love, listen to him. The three times that God speaks audibly during Jesus' ministry, two of those times he's paraphrasing that scripture. 
Uh, and then ver- verse 9, it says this, uh, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now that's very, you know, fire and brimstone and whatnot, but that's cited three times in Revelation to describe Jesus's regal rule. Now that, that passage in Psalms 2, there is so much symbolism that comes to reality, that comes, comes to light later on, but even as you delve deeper into the prophets, you start to see things that are just too specific to be coincidental, especially when stacked all on top of each other. It's really quite amazing. Uh, I want you guys to understand this today. Biblical prophecy points to the Bible's reliability. So in other words, when we look at the prophets in the Old Testament, when we see the things that they prophesied about and how they came true, that shows us that we can trust Scripture, that Scripture is Reliable Biblical prophecy points to the Bible's reliability. It says this in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. It says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you know, this explains how we can trust in those prophecies and how so many of them, how all of them, can come to be fulfilled because they didn't come from man. I am not, like, it would be really, frankly, kind of amazing and a little creepy if I could point to each one of you in the room and tell you what you're going to wear tomorrow and get you all right. I can't do that. I'm an imperfect human person. These prophecies, they didn't just come from the prophets themselves. They came from God's Spirit, and so we can know that they are true and we can trust in them. So here's the cool thing about prophecy and the reliability of Scripture is, first of all, prophecy is all about Scripture affirming that Jesus is God's Son, okay? Scripture affirms that Jesus is God's Son, and we have all these Old Testament prophecies. I'm going to reference a couple of them in a little bit, but in the New Testament, the first four verses of Hebrews, uh, this is what the author says. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, word, After he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Uh, If you you open up Colossians, at the end of Colossians chapter 1, it talks about how he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the invisible God become visible and seeable. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the fullness of of God in the form of man. And that's important that Scripture affirms Jesus as God's Son because the reality is I, I don't worship the Bible. I, I see the Bible as authoritative and I, and I value Scripture. It's so important for us, uh, for our lives. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. So therefore, it is of utmost importance that Scripture does affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a, a great moral teacher. He's not just a wise person. He is the Son of God. And Scripture does affirm that time and time again. Again, even as we reference back to the statements of God, this is my son who I love. Scripture affirms Jesus as God's son. And honestly, that would probably be enough for me, but what's cool is it doesn't stop there. Uh, Not only does Scripture affirm that Jesus is God's son, but Jesus affirms Scripture as God's law. 
Uh, in Matthew 5, 18, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose has been achieved. This is in context of him saying, don't think I came to abolish or get rid of the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Uh, in Luke 4, Jesus is reading scripture from the Old Testament uh, to people on a scroll, and after he finishes it, he says, uh, this prophecy is fulfilled today in your hearing. Okay, Jesus multiple, multiple times proves the importance of God's law, of God's scripture. So, Obviously, you know, Scripture tells us that Jesus is God's Son, and Jesus tells us that Scripture is God's law and God's Word. That's really important, and that's really great. Uh, we might need a little more convincing, maybe. So here's what's cool. You know, we're here to talk about prophecy. Well, here's some of the prophecies that are predicted in the Old Testament, and I'm going to reference some of these Scriptures. You're welcome to look some of these up and check for yourself. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, uh, predicts that God's Son would come from the line of David. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 14, that God's son would be king forever. Hosea 3, 4 through 5, the temple would be destroyed, but God's son will return. Micah 5, 2, God's son would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7, 14, God's son would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 53, 5, God's son would be crucified for our sins. Zechariah 12, 10, the death of God's son would bring grief to all. And those are just the ones that show up in Mark Moore's essay. Uh, for this chapter. Okay, there are many more, and what strikes me, even just going over those few that we put up on the screen, they actually get pretty specific. These aren't just, you know, well, he's going to, you know, be a, a, an actual person, and, you know, he will, he'll walk around and say good things. No, it gets specific. You know, sometimes I think of, when I think of prophecy, I think of those old, like, TV psychics who they get up on stage and they, they say, like, uh, I'm, I'm hearing from the spirit world that there's somebody in the room who uh, their, their name has an M. Does anybody's name have an M? Oh, yes, yours. And I think something happened to you recently. Yes, yes, it did. And, and they start from, like, you know, the broadest uh, terms possible, and, and they try to narrow it down, and you can just tell, like, it's, this is just, you know, a whole bunch of garbage. No, Scripture predicts things that are very specific. Uh, to predict that God's son would be born in Bethlehem is pretty remarkable, uh, not to mention that God's son would be born of a virgin. That is not something I would ever put my money on. Uh, some really remarkable things in all of these biblical prophecies end up becoming fulfilled, and it's remarkable. Uh, so, to help us grasp how unlikely that would be, maybe put it in more familiar terms, uh, we're, we're going to use rice, okay? So first of all, I have this little Ziploc baggie, and in this Ziploc baggie are just a few, like you might not even be able to see them, just a few grains of rice. And one of them is black. I, I just marked it with Sharpie. It's like it, so I, I, I marked it black. The rest are just normal white rice. Uh, if I were to have somebody come up here, and I opened up the baggie and I said, I want you to reach in there and, and I want you to pull out the one that I marked with Sharpie. What are, what are the odds of that person doing that? They're pretty good. They're, in fact, they're, they're very favorable for somebody to come up here and do that. Okay? That's, that's easy. That's not that impressive. However, even if we like go a little bit bigger, which this isn't a little bit bigger, but if I, I get something like this and I put the black grain of rice in here, and I bury it at the bottom, and I say to you, I want you to reach in here, and I want you to pull out one grain of rice, and I want it to be the black one. 
we are already beyond the realm of, of possibility, let's be honest. And you know, at first I think, well, this is, this is a good picture of, of what it would be like, the, the unlikelihood that God's prophecy would ever happen and ever come true, but that's not actually entirely appropriate. So here, something a little bit better. So this is about 50 pounds of rice in a wheelbarrow, a little bit more than that. I got to thank Joel for going to Sam's and getting me all this rice. Make sure you grab some on your way out, okay? Um, So this, if I were to bring you up here and I was to say, hey, look, if you reach into here and you pull out one grain of rice anywhere in there, just dig your hand in there, we'll sanitize it later, you pull out this black grain of rice out of all the grains of rice, everybody in here will leave with a million dollars. I'm sure many of you would be willing to come try it, but let's be honest, you're probably not walking out of here with that money. Don't quit your day job, okay? Even this right here is not adequate. I actually don't have the physical means or capabilities to give you an illustration of the unlikelihood of all of these prophecies in Scripture being fulfilled, okay? It's really remarkable stuff. Now, I got... I, I really didn't do any of this math myself, which should give you guys more confidence, actually. I'm not saying that to make you less confidence. That should give you more confidence, okay? But here's the deal. So some of this comes from uh, the essay in Mark Moore's Core 52. So for all the prophecies in Scripture, this is referenced from uh, a book called Science Speaks by Peter Stoner. It says, for all the prophecies in Scripture to be true is fulfilling odds of about one in 100 quadrillion. I bet half of you think I'm just making that number up. I thought that he was when I read it. I was like, that's, that's not a real number. That's, that's not real. Okay, one in 100 quadrillion. So to put that you know, into rice terms, uh, in one 50-pound bag or one wheelbarrow full, uh, there are 1,250,000 grains of rice. Okay? So in order to get 100 quadrillion grains you would need about 100 billion 50-pound bags or 100 billion wheelbarrows full of rice, okay? Which I, we couldn't even, that, we can't even fit in here. That's just, you know, a remarkable, staggering number uh, for scale. If you had that much rice, you could feed roughly 80% of the world's population for an entire month. That is a lot of rice, Okay, that's the unlikelihood for, for there to be 100 billion wheelbarrows full of rice and for you to come up here and reach your hand into one of them, assuming it's the right wheelbarrow, and then pull out the one grain of black rice. That's how unlikely it is for all of these things to be fulfilled. It is an absolutely staggering thought that all the prophecies we find in the Old Testament, not just centering around Jesus, many of them centering around other things in history, uh, they all come true. And, you know, this is cool, it's interesting, it's exciting. Um, that's not the most important part of the message, as, as encouraging as that is. And I, I hope as you hear this, it, it does give you confidence that, oh, wow, like this isn't just something that can happen by mere chance. I mean, it is too uh, astounding to even assume that it could happen on accident. Scripture must be true. I, I hope you are encouraged by that. I hope uh, that your, your faith is strengthened in that. But the most important part of this sermon is not the fact that Scripture is reliable. I mean, we, we know that's true. Uh, but, but what we need to do with that information. And here's the big takeaway I would hope that anybody uh, walks out the door with in their minds is this. If what is said of Jesus is true, 
then what is said by Jesus must be true. If what is said of Jesus is true, what is said by Jesus must be true. You know, when we read through the Bible and we see the things the Old Testament is talking about, I mean, it is talking about a person that has come, you know, not just to teach us a few nice things, but he has come uh, to set free the captives, to, to redeem, to, to destroy evil and sin and, and bring us into an eternity uh, with him. I mean, it's, it's big, important stuff. And scripture also says that those things are all fulfilled in Jesus. I mean, it says in Hebrews, he's the exact representation of God's being. Colossians says he is the image of the God that is invisible. Jesus is so important and so compelling, and therefore, if all these things beyond all chance are actually true, then we really need to change some things. I mean, this calls for a change in our life toward following him more obediently. Uh, it, it calls for a, a very intentional reread of, of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we start to consider who Jesus is and how confident we can be of what Scripture affirms that he is, and and then we think, wow, I guess, I guess I really do need to turn the other cheek. You know, when you read Matthew 25 and, and Jesus is telling a parable and he says, you know, when you care for the, the sick and the needy and the poor and the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the captive, you're actually caring for me. Maybe, maybe that means we actually need to make sure we are caring for people like that. When, when James says religion that is pure and blameless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, Maybe that means we should start worrying and caring about those people. When Jesus calls us to love others, we really need to do that. When, when Jesus told Peter to follow him, Peter obeyed. And as a reward, reward, Peter saw who Jesus really truly was. And we can do that same thing. We can follow with a similar obedience because Scripture affirms who Jesus is. And if Scripture's right about Jesus, then the things Jesus said have to be true as well. And because Jesus is who he says he is, uh, Jesus also affirms Scripture. I mean, again, we've talked about that a little bit. Jesus often referenced and read Scripture. Um, he quoted Scripture a lot uh, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Satan came at him with Scripture, and Jesus defended himself with more Scripture. Scripture was obviously important to Jesus, and therefore we can know that it's true. And since God's Word is true, that means that we have uh, some application points that we have to make with that. And so here are just three things that we can do since God's word is true. Uh, and the first is this, uh, we can trust it, okay? Uh, Psalm 119, uh, verse 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's a familiar verse. We can trust God's scripture. Uh, there is a, I think he's an astrophysicist or something smart sounding like that. His name's Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, he has this great line about science. He says, uh, the great thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. And, and I like that. I like that line a lot. You know, the great thing about science, you can choose not to believe it, but it's still true. Uh, and I think for us, the same thing can be said about scripture. I mean, this is God's truth. You can choose to believe it or you can choose to not believe it, and that's your prerogative, but that doesn't change the trueness of it, right? Scripture will be true. God's word will be true whether you trust it or not, so why not trust it? And one thing we have to remember when it comes to trusting God's word is this, that everything in our life being happy and good and going well all the time that's not one of the signs that Scripture guarantees is going to work in our life. Uh, that's not what makes Scripture trustworthy. What makes Scripture trustworthy is, again, that it's true, that it's God's Word, and that while the world around us changes, God's Word will not change. 
You can trust God's word. But then that leads into the second application point, which is this, we must obey it. Uh, it says this in James 1.22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You see, our trust is actually made complete in our obedience. Uh, how obedient we are willing to be actually reveals how trusting we actually are of what God's word says. Uh, think of it this way. This is kind of a silly analogy, but like you wouldn't just let anybody take you up in an airplane and then push you out of the plane with a parachute, right? You would want somebody who, you know, knows what they're doing and has experience and is a professional. Basically, you, you wouldn't let me shove you out of an airplane, right? I would hope not. I don't want you shoving me out of an airplane, okay? Uh, you're, you're not going to follow the instructions. You're not going to get on the plane. You're not going to do any of those things because you don't trust me. But if you're with an expert, which let's be honest, how many of you are actually skydiving in here if you get the chance? Very few. Yep. I knew I could count on Kelly Toll. Okay. She's braver than me. But if you're not with somebody who you can trust, you're not going to do any of those things. You're not going to follow any of the directions. You're not going to get on the plane because you don't actually trust that person. Well, guess what? You can obey the things Jesus commands because you can trust that he is who he says he is. So even though sometimes those commands, they, they don't seem self-serving, that's kind of the point. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be miserable forever. In fact, Jesus guarantees eternity with him. So, so really, what is it to... to to put your, your neighbor before yourself? What is it to turn the other cheek? What is it that when someone asks you to go two miles, you go with them, or sorry, a mile, you go with them two miles? Uh, you can obey the things Jesus says. He is good. And if things are hard, that's okay. You can obey him because you can trust him. Uh, one thing that has proven help, helpful to a lot of people, if you're, you're reading scripture and you want to know how to obey and how to apply it to your lives, one, one practical thing you can do is each time you open your Bible uh, every day, just write down one action point from what you read. Wherever in Scripture you're reading, when you finish, just write down one little action point you can carry out that day. Obey God's Word. The last thing is this. Uh, so we have to trust God's Word. We have to obey it. But also we need to handle it well. Um, we need to handle God's Word well. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. Again, that's 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, this comes from 2 Timothy, the, the Timothy letters, and then the book of Titus are what's called the pastoral epistles. This was written for, you know, pastors and teachers, but, you know, I think that reading it now, I mean, all of us, if we are witnessing to people who, who don't know Jesus, we're all pastors, you know, we're all teachers, and we need to know how to handle the Word of God well. I remember when I was a kid, we had a father-son camping trip that my church would do. And so when I was really young, I don't even know if I was in middle school yet, uh, one of the older guys, he's a, he's a Marine, he's super tough uh, and manly, he decided to teach all of us young guys, he said, you guys need to know how to properly and safely handle a firearm. And we were like, ooh. And uh, he showed us some handgun. I don't know about guns. It was a black handgun. I don't know. I'm, I'm not good with that stuff. But I, I know how to handle it safely, okay? So he shows it. He takes, like, the, the cartridge out of the gun, and he says, okay, I took the cartridge out of the gun, so it should be okay to play around with, right? Like, I can point it anywhere I want because there's no bullets. And we were like, yep, absolutely. And then he turns and he fires it, and, and the boom, like, I, I peed my pants, okay? It scared me so much. And he explained that there was, like, a hidden chamber in the gun, and his point was never, never mess around with this, you need to, if you're going to hold this, you need to know how to handle it well. Now, I, I don't want to, like, compare God's Word to something like that, uh, but here's the deal. God's Word is powerful and effective. In fact, Scripture describes it as a sword that cuts 
uh, and divides. However, just because it's a sword that cuts and divides, that doesn't mean that we need to be wielding it like a butchery tool. Uh, Shane Wood puts it this way, uh, Ozark professor Shane Wood, he says, when we present the truth without love, it ceases to be God's truth. And so oftentimes what we do, because we, we don't actually know how to handle Scripture well, we, we twist its meaning because we're imperfect people. Again, you go, go back to uh, the, the second Peter verse that like prophecy didn't come from the prophets. It didn't come from the prophets because they're not perfect. They mess up. It came from the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, everything we read in God's Word, it, it might have been written by flawed individuals, but it came from a perfect God. So if something's not adding up, it's probably because we are misunderstanding or even twisting something. Too often we, we take Scripture and we miss the meaning of it. I mean, Philippians 4.13, it, it's a, a wonderful reminder that we can remain faithful during suffering, but we often just kind of water it down to a feel-good mantra for our worldly success. Uh, Romans is this challenging book, and it's full of these reminders that, you know, sin is death, but grace is more powerful. But oftentimes we take Romans 1.27 and we fashion it into a club to bludgeon the LGBTQ community. Uh, we, we love how 1 Corinthians 13 sounds at the wedding ceremony, but a couple years into a tough marriage, we don't want to remember that our love, it should be patient and kind and not boastful, not keeping record of wrong. That's the one I'm bad at, okay? Sometimes we take Scripture and we, we see how powerful it is, but we, we don't know how to handle it correctly. And the truth is this, that if we want to wield God's truth, we need to do it the way he intended. We need to handle the truth well. We need to understand what it means. We need to come to Scripture and know that I'm, a perfect, I'm an imperfect person. This comes from a perfect God. I need to let the Bible read me before I read the Bible. I need to let God search my heart so I can use Scripture uh, not, not just to, to, to judge people or, or to discourage or to alienate, but to challenge people and to encourage. I mean, it says that Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training and all righteousness. Uh, I, I love the way it plays out in Acts chapter 8 when Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, he comes across an Ethiopian who's struggling to understand uh, this text from Isaiah, and it talks about a slaughtered lamb, and he doesn't understand what it means, and, and Philip is able to handle Scripture correctly, which, by the way, that passage was a prophecy speaking of Jesus, and so Philip helps him understand the Word. He wants him to know what Jesus can do for him, and so then, of course, the Ethiopian's response is trust and obedience. He says, well, look, there's water right there. Why wouldn't I not just be baptized now? And as a result, a new person is ushered into the kingdom of God. Scripture is reliable and it's true and that's good news for us because the whole entire importance, everything about Scripture being reliable, it all serves the purpose of us being able to follow Jesus more closely and to know him better and to obey him in a greater way. This is the great news, okay? It makes the good news great news because everything we read in God's word we can have hope in. So when we read that, yes, the wages of sin is death, we also know, wow, the free gift of God really is eternal life. It's, it's really free, and it's ours, and we can live forever with him. You know, the most tried and true verse, John three sixteen. we know that God really did love us so much that he sent his own son so anybody who believes won't perish but have eternal life. At the beginning of Acts, uh, Peter's plea in his sermon, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can know these things are true because we know Scripture is reliable. And that all goes through his son. The most important thing about Scripture is that it reveals truly who Jesus is 
for our life, and we can take heart in that. It's all true. The cross, the empty tomb, they're a reality. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us is a reality. Eternity with Jesus is a reality because if Scripture is true, and it is, then everything said by Jesus has to be true too, and that's a great thing. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue in our worship. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are. Uh, We praise you for your goodness and your love. Uh, Lord, I pray that when we read Scripture, uh, we would know that uh, it is your word, and we can trust it, Uh, not just because it sounds elegant and poetic. No, because it affirms to us the truth we are longing to hear, that everything about Jesus is true, that he is your son, uh, that he takes your word and he uses it to teach and correct and to train us up. And so in turn, we should be doing that too. Lord, we thank you for your love that is so much more than a mere coincidence. Lord, it's a love we can rely on. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.